And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day despite the fact that uh, we now have George Santos on the Science, Technology, and Space Committee in uh, the United States House of Representatives. He's also serving on the Small Business Community uh, Committee. Uh, good choices. Uh, we will get to that and the latest news of uh, former roommates accusing George Santos of theft. And when it comes to uh, other defeated candidates who believe that they actually won, George Santos believes that in the campaign before the one that elected him, he, where he lost by 15 points, he actually won, and that they somehow took the ballots away from New York, some of his ballots or his opponent's ballots, and gave them to Pennsylvania to help President Trump lose in Pennsylvania. Is it confusing? Yeah, it's very confusing. Maybe Kellyanne Conway can actually straighten that all out for us. She is going to be joining us on the show. She has a new book called Here's the Deal, where she talks about some of the strains in her marriage for her work for President Trump and emerging from the Trump administration as uh, one of the the former aides, top aides, who remained close to President Trump and without any indictments or accusations against her. So where is she now concerning the new campaign for the former president? We will get that from Kellyanne Conway. Also, attacks on people that you wouldn't expect. Uh, the We mentioned yesterday there was an individual wearing a Jesus Saves t-shirt at Mall of America in Minnesota, in the Minneapolis area, and he was required to take the shirt off. Why? Is that repression of religious freedom and religious liberty? And speaking of religious liberty, there is also a, a great deal of disturbing information about what happens when people leave uh, a religion in which they've been participating, a, a new study, and it's a major study and a very credible one, that suggests that deaths of despair, that's alcoholism and suicide and, and uh, drug addiction and fentanyl use, the deaths of despair, which have contributed to lowering the whole life expectancy all across the country, are particularly intense for people who uh, leave a religion in which they had been participating. Why would that be? What does that tell us? Uh, we will get to that also on the Michael Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776 is our phone number. The, um, the study which appeared in Market Watch and the, um, basically says the headline, Rise in Middle-Aged White Deaths of Despair May Be Fueled by Loss of Religion, New Research Paper Argues. So-called deaths of despair, such as from suicide or alcohol abuse, have been skyrocketing for middle-aged white Americans. It's been blamed on various phenomena, including opioid abuse. But a new research paper finds a different culprit, declining religious practice. 
The uh, working paper from Tyler Giles of Wellesley College, Daniel Hungerman of the University of Notre Dame, and Tamar Ostrom of the Ohio State University looked at the relationship between religiosity and mortality from deaths of despair. The paper was circulated by the National Bureau of Economic Research. All of these are credible sources and serious academic sources when you have three different universities. The authors noted that many measures of religious adherence begin to decline in the late 1980s. They find that the large decline in religious practice was driven by the group experiencing the subsequent increases in mortality, white, middle-aged Americans without a college degree. States that experienced larger declines in religious participation in the last 15 years of the 20th century saw larger increases in deaths of despair. The researchers looked at the repeal of blue laws in particular. Now, this is interesting. Blue laws were those rules that basically prohibited certain activities on Sunday. They enforced the idea of a, a Sabbath day uh, coming on the Lord's Day in tr Christian tradition on Sunday. I remember growing up with knowledge of blue laws because it was one of those things that allowed my grandmother, uh, and I spent a, many of the years of my very early childhood before my parents left Philadelphia, uh, with my grandmother because my parents were both working and she had a little convenience store you could call it it was a, a basically a store that she and her sister ran in front of the house that they lived in my aunt Irene and the store was called Irene's and they sold little school supplies they sold much to my delight baseball cards they sold pens and pencils and there were schools nearby, and kids would stop by, and they'd buy stuff from the little store. Uh, she was allowed to uh, keep her store open on Sunday, even though there were blue laws in Pennsylvania at that time that said, no, you couldn't have a store like that open on Sunday. And the reason she was allowed to do it is because she was Sabbath-observing and Jewish. So she would have her store closed on Saturday, and then she'd have the advantage of being allowed to have her store open on Sunday. So these blue laws used to be all over the country, but uh, as they say in uh, this report from Market Watch, blue laws limited commerce typically on Sunday mornings. These laws have been shown to be strongly related to religious practice, creating discrete changes in incentives to attend religious services that are plausibly unrelated to other drivers of religiosity, they said. The repeal of blue laws had a 5 to 10 percentage point impact on weekly attendance at religious services. I'd never heard that before. And they increased the rate of deaths of despair by two deaths per 100,000 people they found, accounting for a reasonably large share of the initial rise in the deaths of despair. What's also interesting is that the impact seems to be driven by actual formal religious participation rather than belief or personal activities like prayer. These results underscore the importance of cultural institutions such as religious establishments in promoting well-being. Uh, okay, so no matter what you feel personally about religious services, whether you feel they're boring or they're insulting to your intelligence or they uh, are 
basically irrelevant. The statistics and the research shows that they're good for you. Uh, there have been many, many other studies that show that uh, health and life expectancy and emotional stability are, are helped by people who go to religious services regularly. And partially, uh, and, and they don't emphasize this enough in this uh, summary of, of this research, partially because it's a means of community. It's probably the most important means of community we have. You get to socialize on a regular basis and share beliefs and draw close to people. The, uh, the idea that this is important for happiness and for life expectancy and for health, there is a, a new book called The Good Life, which um, basically follows up on a Harvard study that began in 1938, where it goes over generations and talks about what makes people healthy. And the greatest contributor to your health that is not have anything to do with what you eat or what you smoke or what has to do with your connection with other people. It has to do with friendships and marriages and family. And yes, that is very directly related to church or synagogue attendance. Uh, the, um, uh, they said that in, in this paper, they don't know of any other cultural phenomenon that matches mortality patterns, which are seen for both men and women, uh, as this church attendance reducing the risk of deaths of despair. Why would that be? 1-800-955-1776. We'll be right back. And on the Michael Medved Show, talking about this idea that attending religious services is good for you. There have been tons and tons of research about how meditation can be good for you, and people have much less problem with that. And no, it's not just uh, meditation that is sometimes sold as a panacea, but the notion that taking a, a few minutes maybe even a few hours a day to think about things, to cut off uh, some of the connections with uh, various social media and even various other people uh, to try to focus on your life and where you are. And uh, this is not, I mean, there's so many Eastern styles of meditation like Nichiren Shoshu Buddhism, which was a, a thing way back in the, I think 1970s and 1980s, where you were supposed to say these three words, nam myoho renge kyo. And if you said them often enough and loud enough in front of a gohanzen, a little shrine that you could use, there were all kinds of things that were promised to you about better health and better success and getting more of what you want. There's nothing magical about it, it seems to me. But the idea of a pause and a sort of looking at yourself as part of a larger whole is, is clearly going to be beneficial to your sense of well-being, to your sense of context, to all of that. That's the idea of a Sabbath, which is very important. That's the idea of uh, daily prayer. And 
I, I will say, by the way, it is very much a Jewish tradition to engage in daily prayer in morning, afternoon, and evening. We don't have five times a day like Muslims do where they tor- turn toward Mecca, but we do have three times a day. My personal practice, I will admit, is that I do pray every morning, but I pray at home. Uh, there was a time in my life when I would go to synagogue every morning, and it's part of what actually made me more religious. I was saying Kaddish, a memorial prayer for my my uncle, my father's brother, who had uh, just passed away suddenly and really in front of me. We're, I mean, he, uh, he lived for 70 years from uh, 1905 to 1975 and was a remarkable person and had a great influence on myself and my three brothers as well and, and lived with my parents for, uh, and for our family for a period of time. In any event, my going in every morning and saying memorial prayers with him where at the time I was kind of the only person, certainly the only person under 30 at the time, and I, I was in my early 20s, and uh, probably the only person under 70 uh, for that small group of uh, uh, 10 people who had gathered together in prayer. But uh, the, the idea of deaths of despair has to do with people being disconnected. And again, this new book that I just mentioned called The Good Life goes along with the work that we have been talking about and the work of Arthur Brooks, who is a specialist on happiness and actually teaches happiness courses at Harvard University now used to be the president of the uh, American Enterprise Institute. But one of the key things about happiness and satisfaction and what does lead to greater life expectancy and, and better health and a better sense of well-being and to avoid uh, things like drug overdoses and suicidal ideation and the rest of it is friendships, is having people to whom you are close. And I have something that's going to be in our newsletter uh, this Friday uh, is a new column with some of the research is just stunning about the growth in friendlessness and loneliness and the number of people who say today in surveys that they don't have any close friends. And that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because there's so many people who pursue friends and followers on social media. We have all of these connections that are uh, very much part of our lives in which we spend um, many, many hours a day. Uh, the, uh, one of the figures that is stunning is, uh, Jeremy, you know how many times the average American adult checks uh, his inbox or her inbox uh, and, and just checks to see what media messages there are? Yes, what if you're always on there? First of all, they say that they're, they're 31% of uh, young, younger people, people under the age of 30, who say they are always connected. They're, they're always following their inbox. But other than that, it's 77 times a day. People check to see what's come in. And the difference, and it's a, it's a key element, what's the difference between the friendships that, you have that are very good for your health and having friends on social media. It seems to me a lot of the friendships, a lot of the connections on social media are all about bragging. 
and uh, oh, look at this wonderful vacation we had. Look at this delicious food I just prepared. Uh, look at how great my children are uh, or uh, how great my new girlfriend is. Or Basically, it's, it's basically people who are doing very well. But one of the helpful things about friendship and the kind of friendship that is encouraged by people actually uh, getting together on a regular basis at a church or a synagogue is that if you're going through rough times, and everybody does, everybody does, not just health crises, but personal crises, that's what real friends are for. And that doesn't work so well, it seems to me, in the world of social media. So the replacement of social media friendships for real-life friendships that involve regularly seeing someone else and talking about not just the great things that you've done, but some of the tough times that you have, that's one of those key differences. Um, there's uh, one of those things that, that fascinated America during the Trump administration, and where you had to be sympathetic to Kellyanne Conway, because her husband, George Conway, was one of her boss's major critics. So what happened? And how did she manage to keep her marriage together? She goes there. She has a new 500-page book. It's called Here's the Deal. It's a memoir, uh, and it is uh, one of those, those books that answers lots of questions and gives you a different view of President Trump and his administration than most of the other people who worked for him at one time and became very disillusioned. Uh, Kellyanne Conway still writes generously and positively about President Trump. So how about handling the, uh, the difference with her husband? And does that difference still persist? They have four children, by the way. We will be speaking to Kellyanne Conway, the author of Here's the Deal, coming right up on The Medved Show. Your daily dose of debate. Give me more. The Michael Medved Show. When it comes to people who served Donald Trump in his cabinet and as his personal advisors and as White House aides, there are very, very few who have uh, gone on to neither join his third campaign or to actually criticize the former president and uh, a, a basically go in a different direction politically. One of the people who has taken the middle course, who still writes generously about President Trump, and who was one of his most important advisors, was Kellyanne Conway. She was already an established pollster and political pundit and uh, political spokesperson before President Trump hired her as his campaign manager. Uh, at a time, his campaign was floundering in 2016. She has now written a 500-page memoir, which is fascinating partially because of its personal revelations. Uh, 
Kellyanne Conway's book is called Here's the Deal. And here's the woman herself, Kellyanne Conway. Kelly, uh, congratulations on the book. Oh, so nice of you, Michael Medved. I know you and I go way back, and congratulations on your continued success. Many people don't make it this long in that <laughs> line of work. So uh, obviously you still attract a great audience who trust you for reliable, up-to-date, credible information. And um, I also know how smart and entertaining you are. So thank you. As I like to say about that book, 507 pages, it's either a doorstopper or a showstopper. <laughs> uh, you, I'll leave it to your audience to decide. But um, look, in many ways, it's my, certainly my personal journey. But I think it's also it could be anybody's story because this is the greatest country God has ever put on the earth. And in America, you can be anything you want. I worked super hard, but so do lots of women who never get their lucky break. And I got my lucky break when Donald J. Trump did what he had been doing, honestly, for many years, elevating women to positions of authority and power. And uh, I like the fact that his campaign in 2016 ultimately was about the people's grievances and not his own. And I've given the advice, including in a recent New York Times piece, I give the advice to him routinely. Um, informally now that you have to channel the people's grievances, not your own. Nobody cares uh, what a billionaire is complaining about. But they very much care that they seem to be drowning economically and looking for pockets of air. You know, Elections it's, it's interesting. The future, not the past. Yep. We, we covered that fine op-ed that you had in the New York Times. We covered that on the air. And I was struck by precisely that sentence where you said that uh, it was important for President Trump to win a new election if he if he wants to um, by emphasizing the people's grievances not his own uh, don't you think that it a part of that means uh, moving on past the stop the steal debate and uh, basically to accept what happened in 2020 and then just determine it's going to be very different in 2024 I do and I'm fairly critical of his 2020 re-election campaign in my book, Here's the Deal, Michael, because uh, they had $1.6 billion. Their opponent was Joe Biden. It really should have been Reagan 84. And instead, uh, he came up short. Joe Biden's been the president for two years now. So, yes, I believe that um, there, look, I think we'll never know the full truth about the 2020 elections in certain places and spaces, but there was never enough evidence presented to, to change the election results in any of the states. Um, that was accepted by a judge. I don't like what I see now that we've got, uh, we've made permanent and legal and codified some of these COVID-compelled measures that seem truly arcane and primitive. I mean, you look at a state like Arizona, what are we doing voting weeks before Election Day and still counting the ballots weeks, weeks after? So I can understand why some people are upset about uh, not being as good as, say, Georgia or Ohio or Florida when it comes to counting all the votes early and on Election Day and telling us, Michael, who won actually on Election Day if the race is not that close. But in terms of a president, as somebody wants to run for president, voters expect you to have vision, and it really is their vision. You know, we, we Americans, we protest and we pontificate in groups, but we vote as individuals, and we could be pretty self-interested as individuals. Why wouldn't we be? And I, I think that 2022 midterms were disappointing for several reasons, but not least of which was Republicans need to need to complete their sentences. And that's not just a Donald Trump thing. We need to start finishing our sentences. So if you're just saying crime, inflation, supply chain crisis, baby formula, Putin in Ukraine, those aren't even sentences. They're words and clauses. So it's really incumbent upon the party and 
Trump and whoever wants to be president, Biden for that matter, Michael, to do what you do every single day, which is present the theory of the case, identify the problem quickly because people already know the problem and get to the solutions and the specifics. Absolutely. And that is, of course, what needs to happen. With some of the limited time we have right now, and then we will look forward to having you back to discuss this further, part of what your book focuses on is your relationship, which has been a very romantic relationship for some years with your husband, George, who uh, has a somewhat different (laughs) view of President Trump and did famously from you. Uh, Do you uh, talk at home about... President Trump's new campaign. Neither of you was at Mar-a-Lago for his announcement of this new campaign. Uh, do you think you're going to participate in it? I'm not affiliated with President Trump's 2024 campaign. Okay, I and, and I assume your husband still has a negative view of President Trump's. Well, he does, and he's welcome to because this is America, and people disagree. Couples disagree routinely about any number of issues. It wasn't George's disagreement with Trump that was problematic for me or for our marriage, Michael, it was the way in which he announced that, that break. I mean, he was there crying in his black MAGA hat on election night saying she did it, she did it, she did it, referring to his wife as the first woman to successfully run a U.S. presidential campaign. He was there with me, and, and had it not been, I, I write in my memoir, Here's the Deal, Michael, that uh, people will often say, well, without Kellyanne Conway, Donald Trump would have been president. That's debatable, but what will never be in doubt that without George Conway stepping in and helping more with the kids and supporting me 100% and almost insisting that I take that campaign management job when it was offered, I don't think I could have done it with the energy and consistency and alacrity and professionalism with it, which I did. So we all have George Conway to thank, um, in part for (laughs) Donald Trump's election. And he changed his mind, and I felt like he changed his mind about me. I put in the book, it's pretty raw, but maybe relatable to others, that um, George is welcome to disagree but I don't think he changed his mind about Trump. I think he changed his mind about me and that I say my husband left me for Twitter and she's not even hot. And I mean that. Um, the obsessiveness of the George Conway sent zero tweets, zero in 2016, otherwise known as the year of the tweet. And he has sent well over 110,000 of them, 80,000 by the time Donald Trump left office. Um, that's who, right. sent, who sent more tweets? The, the, time. the president or oh, George I Conway? Sent, I know who sent more. I know who sent more tweets, George Conway. Donald Trump sent less than 30,000 before Twitter booted him. Uh Um, And I guess that makes a little bit of sense. But no, I just don't look. I think that um, I I think you have to decide in this world what's most important to you. And is it love or politics? And um, I had offered to leave the White House and but I wanted to know what the plan was and ultimately did that for my children um, in in late, late August, early September 2020, famously less drama more mama. And I made good in that promise. But, um, you know, couples can disagree. Listen, people can go up against Kevin McCarthy until he wins on the 16th ballot. People can run against Donald Trump for the nomination. What I don't like is when we allow so much of that to spill over into the public. I think family disagreements, whether there's a married couple, true family, um, or a political party for that matter, or the Republican conference choosing its new speaker, I think much of that has to be done you know, privately behind closed doors. That's the way I was raised anyway. So it was quite a shock. The uh, book is called Here's the Deal. It is uh, a memoir that is uh, candid, raw, as uh, Kellyanne Conway just said at some points, and fascinating as Kellyanne Conway's uh, career and situation has been. There's information about our upbringing 
in an all-female, and I didn't know this, Italian-American household. Uh, more uh, coming up uh, w- later, as we'll speak to Kellyanne uh, in the future. Uh, the book is posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back with a, a, an incredibly pompous elitist statement by John Kerry. Coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Mike. He's Michael Medved. And he is... Reporting for duty. Now, some people may forget that, but uh, John Kerry, when he ran for president, made a very big deal out of his service in Vietnam. And then that became controversial because uh, there were a number of, of people who had served alongside him who had... Uh, unkind things to say about uh, Senator Kerry and his service. Uh, later, of course, Secretary of State Kerry. Now he is the president's ambassador uh, against uh, climate change. And he, of course, addressed the elites who were gathered at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, uh, where recently they were all reacting to Greta Thunberg nearby in West Germany and Actually, it's now just Germany. It's a united country. But um, Greta Thunberg had gotten herself arrested protesting the destruction of this village, which seems like a shame, but they're destroying it to uh, do an open-pit coal mine, which will help drive some of the electricity that they need in West Germany, and particularly because of the interruptions with the supplies from Russia, etc., etc. We will not let you get away with this. Okay, no, well, they got away with it, and she was carried away with other protesters. But while that was going on, John Kerry was addressing the elites who were gathered at Davos, which apparently is great fun to attend. I have talked to people who have been there. I have never (laughs) actually made it or been particularly invited. I've been to Switzerland. But uh, this is uh, John Kerry talking about the select group of human beings. And I can't believe he said that because the one big thing against John Kerry, I think more than anything else, has been uh, the idea of uh, he's a very tall guy. He's about 6'4". And he does tower over other people. But does that make him a select, uh, a member of a select group of human beings, as he suggests? Uh, Listen. This is clip three. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary. It's pretty extraordinary that we select group of human beings because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. And if you said that to most people, most people... They think you're just a crazy, tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, you know, do-gooder, whatever. And, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. I've fought in a war. You know that. And other Americans know that. Okay, whatever touched us that allowed us to be here? In other words, does John Kerry uh, believe that he was 
uh, touched by some higher power to enjoy the wealth and prominence and power that uh, he enjoys. And actually, in terms of his financial uh, background, I'm, a great deal of his money has to do with the lady he married uh, in marriage number two, Teresa Heinz Kerry, the widow of a former senator who had served alongside John Kerry, uh, John Heinz of Heinz Ketchup fame. And uh, uh, Kerry talking about being anointed to save the planet. Uh, how do you save the planet? Do you save the planet by uh, ditching the economic system that has uh, basically built uh, everything positive about the world in which we live, and particularly the world we live in, if we're lucky enough to be in the United States. This is the president of Colombia. Uh, his name is Gustavo Petro, and he was sitting next to the one and only Al Gore at a panel in Davos, and he had this to say. It's clip one. Can the capitalism that we have known in the last 30, 40 years overcome the climate crisis that the capitalism helped create? It's a rhetorical question, but it also makes sense because if the answer is no, then we're wasting our time as we reach the no return point. The capitalism that we know nowadays has a driving force and logic and that is to increase our profits in such a way, and that's how we talk about history, to regulate everything without political or social boundaries. And that's the one we have. This has resulted in some sort of global anarchy. Either humanity will die with it, or humanity will overcome capitalism so that we can live in our planet. Oh, groovy, smashing. Yay, capitalism. We're going to overcome capitalism so that we can live in our planet? When you look at the progress that's been made in the world today, and this is the only good thing about 60 Minutes had Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb, uh, what, 50 years ago, and was predicting that there would be mass starvation. And the only good thing about Paul Ehrlich sort of coming back, and he's in his 90s now, more power to him, but the the basic claims that he made were none of them came true. And in fact, starvation is vastly reduced all over the world. And you have two of the the two largest nations in the world by population, China and India, have basically used capitalism. And yes, China has. The, the Chinese change that allowed that country to grow and prosper, it wasn't another intensification of communism. It wasn't a cultural revolution. It wasn't a gro great leap forward. We were talking yesterday. Those... Uh, communist initiatives in China killed millions of people, minimum of 25 million. And most people say about 75 million who who died that way. What capitalism has done is to change, and, and this is something that Lionel Rees Moog, who is a member of the British Parliament, has defined, and it's very, very important, is that 50 years ago, the world was really divided between 20% of the world that was middle class and that had enough to eat 
and could enjoy the idea of upward mobility. And 80% of the world population 50 years ago was on the point of starvation. People did not have enough reliably to eat. We're not making any progress. And now it's been flipped. 80% of the population of the world is basically living lives of, of hope where people can make progress. And in fact, here in the United States, there was a very important column, and we're going to get to this, uh, that was done by uh, the former senator from Texas, Phil Graham, who was an economics professor both before and after his service in the United States House and then the United States Senate. And it talks about the record in the United States where upward mobility, despite what you hear, is alive and well. And far more people in the United States go up in income and earn more than their parents ever did than people who were either stymied in the same segment of the economic spectrum or who actually go down and earn less than their parents. Uh, the, the choices that people have, the liberty that comes with capitalism about choosing a means to earn a living, uh, that's, that's a remarkable change. And then there's Al Gore. Uh, we've played a little bit of what he said at Davos recently. Here is uh, uh, Al Gore on, <laughs> at, at Davos uh, at his finest. Listen. And the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. He betrayed this country. The, he played on our fears. Al Gore unleashed. Uh, Al Gore unleashed a boiling oceans uh, around us. And uh, by, by the way, did does anyone know is Bjorn Lomborg at the Davos conference? He should be and should be heard. Uh, and again. This is not to say that it's not good news that that people are making technological progress and uh, for people who want to choose it, the idea that 10% of the cars that are sold in the world now are already electric cars, we talked about that. Can we recognize some progress and hope for a change in this greatest nation on God's green earth? 